Our Father, as we gather today to study your word, our prayer, Lord, is that your work would be accomplished in us, that you would use this very challenging passage to test us, to grow us, to edify us, to sanctify us, to grow us in the likeness of Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless this time to accomplish your purposes in us as we study your word for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 22 today. Genesis chapter 22. If you got your Bible from out in the foyer, it's page 16. And every time I say, you know, it's going to be on such and such a page, I think, man, we've been in this book for like a year. We've been in Genesis for a year, and here we are on page 16. But I don't know about you guys, but this Genesis study for me has really stretched me and has really grown my faith. Every few years or so, there will be some university somewhere that does a study in which they examine the top fears that people have, that Americans have, and I'm, I'm kind of always amazed, by the way, that public speaking is always somewhere toward the top of the list. Many times people will indicate that they're more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. Uh, and, and maybe, uh, you know, who knows why, maybe that's because they're afraid that they'll die up here and this is just a more painful way to die, I don't know. Maybe it's because the study the most recent study was done in the year of a presidential election, but one university conducted a study on Americans last year and found that the number one fear among American adults was corrupt government officials. Corru- that's got to be a first, corrupt government officials. But also listed among the top fears, the most common fears that Americans have is the death of a loved one. And as I thought about that, I thought back to a time, a trip, that our family took to SeaWorld, probably back around the year 2002. And Caleb was only, I don't know, he he was four or five years old at the time, and Maddie was maybe not even a year old yet. And one of the things that they had at SeaWorld was this enormous tank of fish, this, this huge tank of fish with all kinds of wild and, and exotic fish in it, including sharks. And you could look inside of this enormous fish tank from one of two places. You could stand above it, or you could go down below, and you could stand in front of it and and see. Sometimes they'd have a scuba diver in there with, with the fish and everything. And the reason that I remember this so vividly is because we decided at first to look into the, to, uh, into the fish tank from the top. And I was holding Caleb up because he couldn't see it any other way. And as we stood above this enormous fish tank, it struck me that it would be way too easy for Caleb to wiggle free, as kids do, and to fall into this tank and for us to lose him forever. You know, as a, as a parent... I've had a handful of experiences in which I was genuinely concerned, kind of shocked, startled in the moment, because I thought there might be a chance of one of my kids falling into serious, serious danger, maybe even death. No parent wants to go through the death of a child. You know, we, we, we expect our parents to die. 
We, we, because they're older than we are, you know, we, so we expect that the that their lives will, will end sometime in, in our lifetimes, and so there's usually quite a bit of time for us to, to brace ourselves, for us to, to kind of prepare ourselves emotionally and, and mentally for the death of a parent, but nobody, nobody wants to see their kids die. Nobody prepares for or expects to see their children die. And whether you've lost a child or not, the chapter that we come to today is one of the most memorable in all of Scripture because, maybe because, it's, it's so shocking. Whatever the case may be, this chapter has a way of pulling at the strings of our hearts like very few other chapters in all of Scripture do. And you know, I don't remember, I tried to think back to the first time I read this story, and I can't remember what I thought or what I felt the first time I heard this story, but as I, as I read it this week, I recognize that it is emotionally charged, to say the very least. Some people have read this chapter, and after they read it, they conclude that they want nothing to do with God because He seems like a moral monster. He comes across perhaps through our twisted, sinful lens of perception, he comes across as sadistic and a maniac in this passage. But there are two things that we all need to be very mindful of as we prepare to study this chapter. First, remember that God is righteous. God is righteous. He's always good. There's never a nanosecond in which he is not perfectly good, perfectly righteous. And if if there ever seems to be a time when he's not good, it's because we've either failed to understand what the text says about him, or we've failed to look at it from the correct perspective. So first, remember that God is always righteous. But secondly, remember that our emotions don't dictate moral goodness or moral evil. Our our emotions don't dictate what is morally good and what is not morally good. Only God dictates what is good and evil. Our emotions don't dictate that. Our emotions lead us all over the place. Our emotions lead us to make stupid decisions sometimes. Our emotions lead us once in a while to truth. Maybe it's accidentally though. More often, our hearts lead us away from the truth. They're subjective. They change. They shift They move, but God is objective. Our emotions and our feelings will change, but God and His Word will never change. So today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 18. And like just about every other chapter in Scripture, this chapter teaches us about faith and obedience. And as far as those two elements go, as far as faith and obedience go, this chapter, I mean, if, if you were to liken it to anything, it would be, it would be like Mount Everest. It's, it's like the Mount Everest of Scripture in terms of, of faith and obedience in action. No act, no act of any other sinful, fallen man or woman in all of Scripture compares to the faith and obedience demonstrated by Abraham in this chapter. So the central point of this passage that we're going to see is that God faithfully provides for us, testing our faith and teaching us to submit all that we have and all that we are to the will and to the glory of God. God faithfully provides for us 
testing our faith, teaching us to submit all that we have and all that we are to the will and glory of God. So we begin with kind of a a startling turn of events in the the story of, of Abraham's life. Just the first two verses of chapter 22. Verses 1 and 2 say this, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the text just starts out initially very plainly after these things. And where does that cause us to go when we see those words? It should cause our minds to go back to the preceding verses. It tells us to go backwards, and we remember that these things, we see that these things refers to the covenant that was drawn up between Abraham and Abimelech, an agreement that secured a water source for Abraham and for his descendants for generations. And just prior to that, we, we, we studied the story of how Hagar and Ishmael were kicked out of Abraham's camp, and Abraham was Uh, was distressed about it, but he did what God said. God said, do what your wife says. And he did it. He sent them away. So the previous chapter did end on a high note, though, with Abraham calling on God as the everlasting God, a term which refers to God's everlasting faithfulness unto his plans, his purposes, and his people. He is the everlasting God because his faithfulness endures forever. And that leads us up to this point. It brings us to a point where Abraham's faith gets tested like it's never been tested before. And that's what we've seen since the beginning of Abraham's journey. That Abraham will, will hit a high point. He'll, he'll have this, this great, uh, a great point in his walk with God, only to be tested, and sometimes he would fail miserably, and sometimes he'd do okay. James chapter 1, verse 3 says this, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God tests us. And He tests us in order to strengthen and refine us. He stretches our faith. And oftentimes, that is incredibly painful. But it's what must be done in order for our faith to grow. You see, we have to remember a very important principle here, and that is that God's intention is not for us to have a stagnant faith that goes nowhere. Because we all recognize that if you see stagnant water, you don't drink it. There's death in it. Likewise, God does not intend for us to have a stagnant faith. No, God's intention is that we have a growing, expanding, deepening, widening faith. A faith that's growing in strength. A faith that's growing in stability and in steadfastness. And that doesn't happen when we're just coasting along through life. We must be tested. And so God tests us to accomplish steadfastness in our faith, in our lives. And whether you like it or not, if you are a child of God, He wants to do with you what He did with Abraham. And that doesn't mean that your your faith journey is going to look exactly like Abraham's did, but it does mean that God wants to bring you to the place 
the same place he brought Abraham, to a place where you are willing to surrender all that you have and all that you are to the will and to the glory of God. And that's not something that happens naturally by our means. It's not something that happens overnight. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes God's work in us. It takes His refinement. So there's a process. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I hope you can sense the tenderness in God's voice here, the, the, the delicacy in his voice. He acknowledges that this is Abraham's only son. Now we know that Ishmael is also his son, but, it's, but Ishmael was an illegitimate son. He wasn't the son of the promise, and he is no longer in Abraham's camp. So at this point, this is Abraham's only son. God acknowledges that. This is, this is your only descendant. He acknowledges that Abraham loves Isaac. Here's an interesting fact. If you were to do a word study on the word love and to see when the first time it occurs in Scripture might be, it's here. This is the first time in the entire Bible that we find the word love. And it's the love that a father has for his son. It's the love that Abraham has for Isaac. And God's words here seem difficult. And yet there is a sense in which perhaps they are comforting because we see that God is completely aware of how offensive that might seem to Abraham. He's completely aware of how preposterous the task he's set before Abraham might seem. Now you might be asking, what kind of a test is this? What kind of a test is this? What's he testing? Well, really, in, in the context of the passage, he's testing the conclusion that Abraham reached at the end of the previous chapter, which is that God is the everlasting God. It's testing his confidence that God is forever faithful to his purposes, his promises, and to his people. We should remember that Isaac is a child of promise, of God's promise. God had promised Abraham a descendant through whom the nations, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And over and over again, he's repeated this, this promise. He's, he made the promise. He's reiterated the promise. He's expanded upon this promise. He even renamed Abram, Abraham. Instead of being named Abram, he changes, changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many. To remind him that the promise will be fulfilled. Scripture tells us Abraham's response to all the promises that God made. Scripture tells us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him as righteousness. But a faith that can't be tested cannot be trusted. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. So now we're going to see what Abraham's faith is really made of. Now we're going to see what Abraham's faith can really withstand because a a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. So we're going to see just what Abraham's faith is really made of here. 
God tells Abraham up front to bring his son, his only son, whom he loves, to the land of Moriah and to offer him as a burnt offering there. Hang on to that location, by the way. Moriah. Because the location is is so significant, it, it might actually surprise you. But what God has asked, has commanded Abraham to do here, really, if we're being honest, this is a shocking Shocking turn of events. We know, because we have a whole Bible, we know that God forbids human sacrifice. We've got a whole Bible to work with. Abraham didn't have that. In fact, he came from a land where it was not uncommon for men, for fathers, to sacrifice their first sons to their pagan gods. So Abraham doesn't have a Bible to work with. All he's got is years and years of walking with the Lord and the experience from that to go on. So when God instructs Abraham to really act against all common decency, all common sense, all the natural love, all the the natural affection that a child, that, that a father has for his child, all that seems right in the world, man, how how does how does Abraham respond? How strong is his faith really? Because I can't personally, think of a test that would be greater than this one. I'll say this much before we continue. The text is strangely silent about Abraham's feelings, about how he feels, how he emotionally responds when he hears these words from God. He's just kind of quiet. Moses leaves that for our imaginations to figure out and to wrestle with. I would imagine that the reason, or at least maybe part of the reason, is that there's no word, there's no words that could possibly convey the depths of sorrow and confusion that Abraham had to be feeling at this point. Now you might say, well, maybe Abraham loved Isaac more than he loved God. So was was Isaac an idol for Abraham? Maybe. We don't know, but it is a possibility. Anything that you love more than God is an idol. So it's a possibility that Isaac had become an idol for Abraham. But whatever the case may be, Abraham is faced with something of a, of a paradox, an unsolvable contradiction. Because there would seem to be this impossible conflict between what God has promised in giving him a descendant through whom all the nations would be blessed, between that and his command to offer his son as a burnt offering. God has promised to bless the nations through Abraham's son. God has miraculously provided the son, but now God has commanded Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, his only son, whom he loved. But we can't accuse God of wrongdoing here. That might be a temptation for us. To accuse God of wrongdoing. To say, oh, God, is, He's awful. He's, he's so mean. He's cruel. He's a moral monster. No, He's not. No matter what our feelings might be about it, Scripture clearly teaches that all life, every life, yours and your kids, belongs to God. So if we think that God is being unfair, if we think that God is being cruel or unjust, 
We have to see that by passing such a judgment on God, we are in the flesh asserting ourselves to be more righteous than God. And you don't want to do that. God is not unjust. Abraham's life belongs to God. Isaac's life belongs to God. All things belong to God. And further, God is not tempting Abraham. He's, to, to tempt means to entice toward evil. No, God is not tempting Abraham. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So He's not tempting Abraham. God, God's not tempting him. He is testing him. But there's a difference. This test will teach Abraham to know the difference and to live by the difference between loving the gift giver and loving the gift. Between loving the promise giver and loving the promise. And so he tests Abraham for the same reason that he tests any of his children. If we do well, James says, it produces steadfastness of faith. And if we fail, and to some degree, I suppose we almost always will, the weak spots in our faith are made evident to us. And so we grow. Either way, either way we grow. But every test, we have to know this, every single test is given out of fatherly love. And the goal is to strengthen and grow our faith for the glory and the good for the glory of God and the good of His people. Every test God gives to His children is for the sake of growing them in the likeness of Christ. All things are working together toward that end for God's people. And that inevitably involves teaching us to submit our will to the will of the Father. Just as Jesus had to submit His will to the will of the Father, so too growing in the likeness of Christ will mean learning to submit our will fully, all that we are, all that we have, to God's will. Now while God doesn't want us as parents, those of us who are parents, He doesn't want us to offer our kids as human sacrifices unto Him, there is a principle to be noted here. And that is that God, number one, does want us to love Him above and beyond our children. But number two, He wants us to see parenting as a stewardship issue. He wants us to see that our kids ultimately belong to Him. We might have them on loan, but they belong to Him. And so it is a stewardship issue. Let's continue. Verses 3-10. to So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. 
He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Maybe the most shocking detail in this whole story is what we see in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. He goes to bed, he wakes up early, and he acts in obedience. He responds in immediate obedience to God's command. That, to me, is perhaps the most shocking detail in this whole story. But that's what we should be striving for. Obedience that acts immediately. Abraham goes to bed, but he gets up early the next morning to prepare for this three-day journey to Moriah. And one would think that it would have been pretty difficult, if, if possible at all, for Abraham to get even a wink of sleep that night. And there is a hint that he was somewhat discombobulated. First he saddles his donkey, and then he cuts the wood for the burnt offering of Isaac. Now if he were thinking straight, if he were completely awake and aware of everything that he was doing, he would have done those things in the opposite sequence. So it seems that he is a little bit discombobulated. He's not exactly on his A game. And who can blame him? Who can blame him? But he nevertheless acts in immediate obedience unto God. And so for three days, they traveled to the land of Moriah. And during this time, we can be entirely certain that Abraham thought about the paradox that he was confronted with. The conflict between God's promise and God's command. God's promise to bless the nations through his descendant and his command to offer his descendant as a burnt offering. How could he reach any kind of resolution between these two seemingly incompatible things? One option would have been to just conclude that God had changed. He changed his mind. He, he had made the promise, but he had changed his mind. And again, we, we have the Scriptures. We have the entire Bible to show us that God does not change His mind. God doesn't change. His, his plans and His purposes are eternal. They're from eternity, and they last to eternity everlasting. But Abraham didn't have the luxury of having a copy of the Bible. All he had was what he knew about God from his own personal experiences. And based on his own experience, he did not believe that God would change his mind. He did not believe that God's plans or his purposes or his faithfulness had wavered. The second way to resolve this seeming paradox was to simply trust that God had something in mind. That God was up to something and that, that he just he couldn't wrap his mind around it. He, 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 he could have. The second, the second issue or the second option here is to resolve the tension between the promise of Isaac and the command to offer Isaac up as a burnt offering by thinking in terms of what God is capable of doing. By thinking God is not bound 
by the laws of nature. God can do the miraculous. And that's exactly what he did. He trusted God. There's there's an incompatibility in terms of nature between these two things. But he trusts God. And he decides that whatever God had in store, whatever God was up to, God would still be faithful to his promises. Now that is some strong faith, isn't it? And so we see in verse 5 that Abraham has reached a point of being at least somewhat at peace with what God has instructed him to do. Look what he says to his servants. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Isn't that interesting? We're going over there to worship. We're coming back. Abraham is confident as they set out to perform this burnt offering unto the Lord that Isaac is going to be coming back with him. That is astounding, isn't it? That is incredible faith right there, isn't it? He was sure that the outcome of this event, however it was going to play out, would not be the end of Isaac. Abraham had three days to think about this. He had three days to mull it over. Three days to contemplate it. Three days to come up with some kind of hypothesis for what God would do. And Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19 tells us what he came up with. It says this, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So there you go. That's the conclusion that Abraham came to at some point during this three-day journey. He figured that God was going to allow Abraham to kill and burn Isaac, but then God would raise Isaac from the dead. Now, the idea of a resurrection here is totally foreign to this people. We have the whole Bible. We have the New Testament that talks about a resurrection. Abraham didn't have any of that. But that's what he figured God was up to. He was convinced that he was about to see a great, great miracle. Something that only God was capable of doing. He knew that if this was going to be the end of Isaac, it was going to be the end of the promise. And if that were the case then God was a liar. But he knew, Abraham knew that God is not a liar. Scripture tells us it's impossible for God to lie. He truly did believe that God was faithful. He truly did believe that God was true, that God was trustworthy. He knew that while it might seem illogical, it might seem like a contradiction in God's character. There are no contradictions in God's holy and perfect character. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is infinitely wise, infinitely righteous, infinitely just, infinitely sovereign, but He is not double-minded. Resurrection is possible with God. But acting contrary to His holy and righteous nature is not possible with God. And so as they arrived at Mount Moriah, Abraham was able to assert with confidence to his servants, we're both coming back. 
in verse 6, we see that the wood gets strapped to Isaac to carry up this mountain. And it's interesting, there's an ancient rabbinical commentary from before the incarnation of Christ that noted that Isaac was like a condemned man carrying his own cross. That was written before Jesus. Without a doubt, this is a foreshadowing of Christ, who is forced to bear the weight of carrying his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, according to John chapter 19, verse 17. And it's difficult to imagine what it must have been like to go up that mountain together. Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. I imagine there had to be at least some awkward silence here as Abraham's thinking about the miracle that he's sure that he's about to see. And Isaac is thinking, maybe my dad's getting too old here. So he asks an important question. Where is the lamb? We've got wood. We've got everything that we need, but we don't have a lamb. Where is the lamb? And Abraham gives him the answer, saying, God will provide for himself the lamb. Again, this is, this is incredible faith. Faith doesn't always understand what God is doing. But true biblical faith does act in obedience to God. It trusts God. Where's the lamb? It's a really important question. It's a question that rings throughout the entire Old Testament. From beginning to end, where is the lamb? David was a man after God's own heart, but he was a sinner. He needed an atonement to be made on his behalf, a perfect, unblemished lamb. And when David essentially asked, where is the lamb? God promised to provide a Messiah through David's descendants, through his line. Fast forward a few hundred years to Isaiah. Again, he's a prophet, but he too is a sinner who needs a substitutionary atonement. And he writes of the day when the suffering servant of God, the man of sorrows, would suffer in the place of his people, thereby forcing the reader to ask the question, where is the Lamb? Zechariah looks to the same day, asking the same question, forcing the reader to ask the same question, where is the Lamb? Daniel, Joel, Amos, Micah, they're all raising the same question in the mind of the reader, where is the Lamb? 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew forced people to ask the same question for 10 generations. Where is the Lamb? To all of these who had raised the question, Abraham's answer stands. God will provide for Himself the Lamb. And so one day, after 400 years of silence from God, a man who wore a sash of camel's hair with a leather belt and who ate locusts and honey came to the lower end of the Jordan River to baptize people as a sign of repenting and being washed clean by God. And suddenly, one day, this man, John the Baptist, baptized Jesus, and a voice from heaven thundered out from heaven, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And sometime later, shortly thereafter, John spotted Jesus again, and he cried out for all to hear, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sin of the world. It's from John chapter 1, verse 36. Abraham knew that God would provide. 
Abraham knew that this would not be the end of Isaac, who was now a young teenager, by the way. The word that gets used here, uh, son, is the same word that was given to Ishmael, used in, used in reference to Ishmael in the previous chapter. Ishmael was a teenager. So there's very strong reason to believe that here Isaac is a teenager. He did carry up all the wood up the mountain. He was stronger than his father. He was faster than his father. He could have escaped if he had wanted to. Nevertheless, we see the same type of submissive obedience in Isaac that we have seen in Abraham. So the two reach the top of Mount Moriah. And Abraham's will is surrendered. It's fully submitted to God. He's ready to do what God has instructed him to do. He didn't necessarily want to do this per se, but he was willing to do this only because he trusted that God would be faithful to his promises. He trusted that God had something miraculous in store, resurrection. And so Abraham has Isaac tied down. He raises his hand to strike. This is true, submissive, obedient faith in action. True biblical faith acts in obedience. And that's the only thing that pleases God. Faith. Faith. Knowing that all, all faith is repenting, all faith is obedient to God. True faith. True biblical faith acts in obedience. And true biblical faith is the only thing that pleases God. A sacrificial offering doesn't please or appease God. Only faith pleases God. And so with Abraham's will completely surrendered to the will and for the glory of God, his hand trembling around the handle of his blade as he prepares to sacrifice his son, God stops him in his tracks. Let's continue verses 11 to 18. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, the day when Moses wrote this, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. A split second was all that stood between life and death for Isaac. 
And the angel of the Lord says, stop. Stop. Don't touch him. Don't touch him. Don't kill him. Because now God is pleased. He's pleased with the faith of Abraham. By the way, who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He speaks, but he speaks of himself as God. And we can only imagine the joy that Abraham must have felt in that moment. Immediately, he looks up and he sees that the Lord has indeed provided a sacrifice for himself, a ram caught in the thicket. We can only imagine what must have been going through his mind, what must have been going through his heart. We can only imagine the eagerness with which he used that same blade to cut Isaac free from the wood and to help him prepare this sacrifice, this burnt offering unto the Lord. And so as the flames burned the ram as an offering, a burnt offering unto the Lord, the hearts and the faith of Abraham and Isaac, both of them soared to new heights, heights that they could not have reached otherwise. The faith of both of them had been tested. The faith of both of them had been stretched. It had been refined. It had been strengthened. And it had been rewarded. It had been grown. And so we read in verse 14, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, again, that's the day that Moses wrote this, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord appears again, or or calls out to him again, reiterating the promises of God unto Abraham, culminating with verse 18 where he says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, that's the angel of the Lord, but it's God. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's Christ. We don't know how much Abraham really understood about God's promise. But there's evidence in the New Testament that Abraham knew that his descendant would be the very angel of the Lord who was speaking to him. The second person of the Trinity. Galatians 3.8 says that, quote, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. At the heart of the Gospel is the Lamb that God would provide, the Messiah. Abraham didn't just have some generic idea of God or what God was going to do. No, Abraham believed the Gospel the same way we do. The same way we do. The same Gospel we have. Abraham believed. He's seen that the Lord provides. When Moses wrote this, he explained that even to that very day, it was said, on on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is, of course, in reference to Mount Moriah. Where is that? Where is Mount Moriah? Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us. It says this, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Did you catch that? That means that Mount Moriah would be in the place that would eventually be Jerusalem, which means city of peace. Now, in Abraham's day, Jerusalem wasn't there. There there was no city. 
It was a barren place. There wasn't a hint of civilization. But this is the place where God would build His city. And this would be the city where Jesus, that Jesus would enter into on Palm Sunday. It was also the city in which God had ordained from eternity that His own Son would die. And that explains why God wanted Abraham to bring his, his only son, whom he loved, to this very location, to this very mountain. Because it was the same location to which God would lead his own son. God was showing Abraham, he's showing us, that he would provide what was necessary for the salvation of his people. Between the time of Abraham and the time of Christ, God instituted the law which was given to Moses, which instructed them to make animal sacrifices. Instead of them personally dying for each and every sin, they could offer an animal sacrifice. What was the point of that? Was it, was it to please God? Did, did, did the blood of bulls and goats and lambs please God? No. Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. So why did God have him do it? Well, the purpose wasn't for the burnt animals, for the sacrificed animals, to make an atonement for sin or to satisfy God. No, there were, there were two primary purposes. First, it was to provide a picture lesson. It's a picture lesson. It's a vivid picture for the people that the wage of sin is death. And they knew it. Every sin required death. Every sin required atonement. Big sins, small sins, everything in between. It didn't matter. It all required death. It required the shedding of blood. The second uh, purpose is just as important as the first. And that is, God wanted them to see the concept, to learn the concept of substitutionary atonement substitutionary atonement. If the wage of sin is death, then the individual needed someone to stand in his place and to die in the place of the individual as their substitute. It was a reminder then that the Lord will provide the Lamb. The historian Josephus tells us that for each annual Passover feast festival, Over a quarter million lambs would be brought into Jerusalem throughout the week. And so with that said, we have to understand that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, when he walked through the gates, he was probably right in the midst of hundreds of lambs. On Friday of that week, Jesus was led to the same location that Abraham was led to. And like Isaac... Jesus was fully submitted to the will of His Father, making no attempt to resist, making no attempt to escape. And as the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, there was no voice yelling, Stop! There was only cheering and mocking. The sins of everyone who would repent and believe in Christ were laid upon Him were imputed to Him. And His righteousness in exchange was imputed, was transferred to His people. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, for our sake He made Him who he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Because there is no other way. 
Our righteousness isn't enough. Our righteousness is sin. That's the best we have in ourselves. But there's a substitute. God provided a substitute. A lamb. A substitute to stand in our place to bear the punishment for our sins on our behalf. And there is only one substitute. And that is the substitute that God Himself has provided for Himself. Without Christ, friends, there is no substitute. If you do not believe in Christ, you have no substitute. You have no mediator to stand between you and God. You have no way of being reconciled unto God because all you have is your own flawed, sinful self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all as far as God's concerned. But God has provided a righteousness for all who will repent and believe in the Lamb that He provided in Christ. Even as God has faithfully provided for our greatest need, which is to be reconciled unto Him, He continues to provide for His people. Paul said this. We'll end with this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. God said, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Jesus Christ. He is with us. He's working all things to grow us and to strengthen our faith. Testing it and producing steadfast faithfulness, steadfast obedience in us. And so when we see that God did not even spare His own Son, but crushed Him in order that we might be reconciled to Him, our response should be to increase our personal resolve. To hold nothing back. To be completely submitted to the will of God for the glory of God. To offer our whole selves, every aspect of our lives, completely for His glory and good pleasure. And to trust more fully, even and, and maybe even especially, when our faith is being tested when we're being tested in the valleys of life. God is ever faithful. He has provided and He will continue to provide. God faithfully provides for us, testing our faith and teaching us to submit all that we have, all that we are, to His will, for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the work that You do in us when we study Your Word. The way that it conforms us to the likeness of Christ. The way that it tests us, grows us, expands our faith, and produces steadfastness in us. And we thank You for the example that Abraham set. Father, we know that this is something that every one of us would struggle with. And yet we see that Abraham acted in obedience. And so we pray, God, that you would teach us the same. 
that even if we might not understand, even if the things that you ask of us are difficult, even if they seem impossible, that we would trust you more fully. That we would respond in immediate obedience unto you. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bear much good fruit in us. And we know that the flesh would prevent that from happening. And so we ask, Lord, that you would test us, that the, the fire that you put us through would, would refine us and would put the flesh to death, that we may bear much fruit for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.